Thanks for listening to Last Call Confessions. This podcast is intended for adult audiences, and there may be language or references that some listeners may find disturbing. Guest views are their own and not necessarily reflective of the Last Call Confessions team. Discretion is advised. Welcome to this episode of Last Call Confessions. I'm one of your hosts, Austin Rieger, and I'm joined by Lauren Serenko and Dave Erner. Today, we have the opportunity to sit down with an OG from the Jersey Shore. He's an actor, comedian, host to the stars, and the co-creator of the renowned variety show Beecher's Madhouse. From working on Capitol Hill to the stage lights of the Hard Rock, MGM Grand, and Roosevelt Hotel, we are excited to have the legendary Pete Giovine with us today. Welcome, Pete, and thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Great to be here. Welcome to the show, Pete. You were expecting me to say more there, but I was really just (laughs) sitting in the moment of being happy to be here. Like a lot of people say they're happy to be here and they just go to the next thing. I let that moment sit and just enjoyed it. Love it. So I'll start off, Pete. So why don't we start at the beginning? You grew up on the Jersey Shore. That is correct. Yes. So what was it like and like how accurate was the TV show, obviously, The Jersey Shore. That's what it's called. Uh, how right. Well, it? Lauren, I know you're a big fan of Jersey Shore. Oh, my God. Is, I watched it this Christmas break. Yeah, it's but. it's great, especially around the holidays, Lauren. You know, when you have your family together <laughs> and you gather around the TV to, to share those holiday memories of the Jersey Shore and watching it together as a family. That's very true. It's very true. I can say this. I know you're a big fan of it. Uh, the, where I'm from is actually where the show was uh, shot in Seaside Heights, New Jersey. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a Guido Mecca is, is really what it is. It's a culmination of uh, uh, gyms, uh, uh, you know, tan lotion and, you know, some, some back alley steroids. It's really what it's all about. It's the bread and butter of Seaside Heights, New Jersey during the summertime. So it's, uh, it's a Guido Mecca, but it's, it's really cool. It's, a, it's an amusement town. There's a big boardwalk there. Uh, I grew up working on the boardwalk and, uh, you know, it's sort of like a carnival, if you will. So it's very much like what you saw on the show, except mm-hmm. more, you know, the food's better than what I think they, they let you to believe. And the parties were the same. The parties were the same. Yeah, it's there's there's yeah. a bunch of clubs. I mean, that's what was so weird about growing up in, in where I grew up is, you know, I grew up ever since I was a little kid thinking like every town had multiple nightclubs in it. You know what I mean? Like there was, I grew up and there was the, you know, there were, there's probably like five or six big nightclubs in Seaside Heights when I was growing up. So like, you know, the old timers would go see the miracles and, you know, listen to, you know, the Yakety Yak Cafe and it would be the fifties music and they'd jitterbug. And then you had like the younger kids and, uh, you know, nightclubs with electronic music and all that stuff. So it was, it was really crazy. Just thinking like, I just thought that's how every town was like, even in middle America, there's six nightclubs in your, you know, summer carnival home. <laughs> and what about the hairstyles? Like, cause I know on the Jersey shore, they have quite the, like the poof, the blowouts and everything. Your hair is pretty. Mine, yeah, mine's pretty big. It's, it's, it's just, cause hey. it's Italian Americans. They just have, we just have the hair. It's not going anywhere. You can hang me from the ceiling by my hair. I wouldn't feel a thing. It's, you know, it's too much, but that's, I look like an Italian Jimmy Neutron. This is, that's what this style is. Oh, you do look like Jimmy Neutron. Never thought of that. That's, that's like that or like, you know, 
you know, it's like a, a Guido versus Kramer from Seinfeld or, you know, a, uh, if Wolverine owned a pizzeria in Jersey City, that's how I look, you know. Uh, but the, the, hair, the hairstyles are that, especially, uh, you know, when I grew up in the 80s and the 90s in New Jersey, hair was big. And it was like one thing, I guess, that never left my DNA where I just feel like if you have the hair, you're supposed to make it as loud as possible. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Dave knows what I'm talking about. Look at him. He looks like he's uh, eating granola right now. I like it. I'm going to be able to sell some of this hair to Austin after I chop it off here. So, or, or to all those girls, like I, I know how much you girls pay Lauren to, to get those hair extensions. I could make a mint off my hair these days. Yeah. You could donate that man. Donate, I know. donate for the good cause. What would they call it? Cause like usually like the hair extensions, like you can get like Russian hair, you can get Asian hair. Yeah. Like there's, I just wonder what your type of hair would be, Dave. Yeah. What I bet Pete, Pete's probably got an idea here. <laughs> No, I mean, that would, it would just have to be, you know, named after whatever region Dave is from. That's, that's the kind of hair it would be, you know, it's. Oh, the, the Calgary region hair? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's a fun Calgary blend. Sounds real, real, real exciting. <laughs> the, the Calgary COVID blend. Yeah. Ooh. Did you guys, did you guys, well, I know, uh, I know Austin didn't have this issue, but Lauren, did you have any uh, COVID haircuts? Did you do any COVID haircuts? No, actually, I grew my hair out. Um, I don't really, yeah, there was, and it was summer, so my hair was blonde. Yeah. Longer, like naturally. So I actually was like, I felt like the first lockdown, I looked really hot. The second lockdown, it's just not. <laughs> it wasn't working as well as it did the first time. <laughs> no, it's winter. So you're like, damn it, stay in the house and eat. Right, right, right. And you get pale. Yeah. So yeah. You, and oh, yeah. you don't even care to go to the nail salon. So it's. Well, I was like, I was lucky to be in Southern California. So I was able to not, I was able to still go outside, but I think if I wasn't able to, I would have gone nuts. Yeah. If you're in minus 40 weather in Calgary. Yeah. So. I don't know how you guys did out there. Yeah. See for me, I, I didn't have the hair to grow. So I did the beard and uh, I grew that out for a solid four or five months then trimmed it into a bunch of ridiculous styles as I shaved it off. You know how, that's how, fun. how you do. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. fun. Took pictures, sent them to my wife. <laughs> yeah. If I ever wanted to look like Buffalo Bill, this is what it looks like. <laughs> exactly. The, the old sons. English inventor. Yeah. Sons of Anarchy, English inventor. Exactly. Uh, Pete, you mentioned working on the boardwalk. What exactly yeah. did you do on the boardwalk? You said it was like a car. So up on the, up on the boardwalk on the Jersey Shore, I used to work what they used to call stop and go wheels. And it's basically, it's a, a wheel with a bunch of different, uh, you know, names on it, numbers on it, and an arrow that spins really fast. And uh, a stop and go operator, you, you got, you know, it's, it, it's a microcosm of, of any sort of promotional business, whether it be, you know, nightclubs or doing a show. You had three main objectives. The first objective was to get people's attention, right? So you call out, guys, give it a shot. All the biggest prizes on the boardwalk going out, you know, just talking, just talking, talking, get their attention. Number one, number two, get them to play your game. Right. And number three, you keep them there as long as possible. Right. So, so basically you call people to your stand. I would have, you know, color TVs, bikes, microwaves, all sorts of, you know, merchandise. And you'd come and you put a dollar, you give me a dollar and I shoot you a, uh, a silver dollar, a uh, Susan B. Anthony coin, which is worth a dollar. It's legal currency. You place it on a, on a bet. We spin the wheel and I call the wheel. 
right? So I'm like, mom, pop, pop, you got sister, you mister, daddy, got it. Here we go. It's uh, it's a two that time, right? And then I wiped that board clean. If you didn't bet number two, then you don't win. So it was it was just a high action. Uh, I was doing it ever since I was like 15 years old. So I was learning how to talk to drunk adults at a very young age and dealing with, you know, night. It, it, this is This would go on at nighttime, you know? where you just have, you know, the whole boardwalk filled with people that are visiting from New York and, and what have you that are just wasted, you know, and just dealing with, you know, drunk people. And, uh, and it, I was one of the loudest mouths on the boardwalk and it was, a, it was like a show. I would put on a mini show to get you to play the game. And it was, it's kind of like what got me into talking to strangers, you know? So it was, a, it was a lot of fun, man. That sounds, sounds super fun. I can only imagine you as a 15 year old on the boardwalk calling people over and getting them. Going. Oh, it's the best. I used to go, Hey ladies, I got 22 inches for you girls. I'm talking TVs. Try the game one time. Try the game one time. <laughs> I like it. Uh, how did you move from that to obviously heading to Washington DC? And did you work, you worked on Capitol Hill? Yeah, how I worked on Capitol about? I worked on Capitol Hill when I, I went to college in DC, which is, you know, four years of undergraduate. And my freshman year of college, I started working for my congressman and uh, the, the, the one that represented my district back in New Jersey. And, uh, and I started my, my freshman year just opening letters, you know, and sort of sorting mail. And uh, I stayed there for four years and wound up uh, actually writing uh, speeches for the congressman and, and sort of being more involved in the actual nuts and bolts of running uh, his office, which was really great. Um, so... It was, it was something I've always wanted to do. I was always curious about the government. So I was like, if I knew I was gonna wind up in back in New York City or another entertainment city, and I felt like, hey, if you're doing four years of college, let's do somewhere different. And, uh, and so I did DC and DC is great. I don't know if you guys have ever been there. It is a great, it's a, it's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful city. It's a, it's a good college town and fun place to be, but uh, the, the experience working on Capitol Hill was something special though. That was a great time. And how long ago was that? Because I know DC's changed a lot over the years. Oh, DC's changed big time. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> this was, I was right at the tail end of when Congress, like uh, um, parties would work together. You would co-sign legislation. You would have a, you know, a couple Republican uh, um, representatives uh, uh, and a couple of Democratic congressmen coming together on a bill together, you know, uh, and that just stopped happening. So I was there from, uh, 90, what would that have been? That would have been 95 to 99. So that was sort of like Newt Gingrich in this country was like, that's, that was like the beginning of the end is when I was there. But I saw the ends of it when, you know, with Ted Kennedy and, and John McCain and all those guys and uh, that were sort of larger than life characters, you know, were there. So, and it was great. And one time I got an elevator, you know, so in, in, uh, in, on Capitol Hill, when there's a when there's a bill that's on the floor uh, to be voted upon, uh, they have a members only alert that goes through the building, and that just means all the elevators it'll have a sign over that says members only. When that light is on, you can't ride in that elevator. And it was like one of my first times in Congress. I got on an elevator, and I didn't realize it was members only, and it just shut. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I'm the only one in here. And next to me was Sonny Bono, and he's like a, a tiny little dude. And he looks at me and he goes, ah, he's, he's like, how you doing, man? I, I'm like, I was like, good, good. And he's like, I was like, and I saw the members only light 
and then I and then I just looked at him and he was like he was like it's okay just you can get off here and I the, the next the time the door opened I just snuck out and I was like Ugh. but it was great man I loved watching DC it was great you you had mentioned uh, when I chatted with you a while ago obviously being on Capitol Hill uh, there's a big divide right now and there was recently that attack on Capitol Hill um, being someone who'd actually been inside the building how how was that yeah it's that? funny it's Great that you asked that because it's um, that's one thing that I noticed when I was witnessing all that stuff on TV on the six. There is such um, uh, working on Capitol Hill, right? So most of the the, the senators and the Congress people have uh, their their actual offices in a building adjacent to the actual like rotunda what you see on TV, the Capitol. Um, so, you know, you spend a lot of your time in those Senate offices and those, you know, congressional offices and, to, you know, adjacent to the Capitol, it's always, you know, but anytime you're actually walking through the Capitol, there's like a level of seriousness that you have, right? Like I can be with an intern joking from the, from the office building and then walking into the Capitol. And then by the time we kind of get into the threshold of the Capitol building, we don't joke around, you know, there's, there's a, there's like a respect that you would have, you know? Um, uh, you know, a, a, a just a, like a somber respect and understanding that, you know, that is like not just the symbol of democracy, it's where it actually happens, you know. Um, so when that happened on the on the six, it was there was a special kind of hurt. And I talked to friends of mine who worked on the Hill back in those days and still work on it. And it's like the most heartbreaking thing to see um, uh, broken windows and, you know, how they trash the place, essentially. Um, just thinking of like in our sort of uh, formative years, how much we were working inside the building, like respected it and understood the history and felt that history and the gravity of the importance of the building. And then seeing it get trashed was like, it was unbelievable, man. That was, that wasn't great. That wasn't great. So it hit me different. That's to answer that. Yes, it hit me different. It did. Now, Pete, after DC, you made the jump into stand-up comedy. Tell us a little bit more about this transition. So uh, I knew I wanted to do comedy and I, I graduated with like some pretty good credentials, right? And it's, you know, where I had worked on Capitol Hill. I worked in a, at a, 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 this like PR firm in DC. Um, and, I, and I just thought to myself, I was like, well, wait a second. I got a pretty good resume. What, now is probably the time to try to do the things that you've always wanted to do, like comedy and acting and stuff like that. And I was like, now's the time I should try it because I have some background to where like, I can fall back on it if it doesn't work out. So I tried it and um, it was basically starting to do stand up in New York City. And during that time, like when I was first starting to stand up is when I met Jeff Beecher at Beecher's Madhouse. And we started doing this whole um, thing together in New York City and it just kind of ran away. So by the time I realized like, I didn't even check on this other life I was supposed to do. You know what I mean? Like where you're just like, I'll just follow my heart or whatever you want to call it and you start doing it. And then you're like, holy shit, I haven't checked in with myself in a while. Like, where, how did I move cities? What just happened, you know? So yeah, so I forget where I'm going with that, I'm sorry. We just want to take a minute to acknowledge all of our listeners from around the world. Currently, we have people listening from Canada, United States, Costa Rica, Australia, United Kingdom, Mexico, Belgium, Greece, Germany, Sweden, the Netherlands, and the United Arab Emirates. 
from all of us at Last Call Confessions. Thank you for making us part of your day. So, so you get to New York, you, you're working with Beecher. Yeah. Um, now, not every, not everybody knows uh, Jeff Beecher. Maybe, maybe tell us a little bit about Jeff um, and, and what you guys were working on in New York and, and what it evolved into. Right. So in the early 2000s, we were doing uh, Jeff Beecher was this producer and he created this uh, this brand called Comedy Gone Wild. And the whole idea was showcasing stand up comedians, but all, but doing it in sort of this event atmosphere where once your tickets torn, the show is started like you're just coming, just just getting to your table, you're experiencing um, you know, whether it's close up magic or jugglers or, you know, it was sort of like this adult circus environment. Um, and so we, that eventually turned into what became known as Beecher's Madhouse. And Jeff Beecher was just the, the showman. He, uh, he always knew like, you know, famous people. And he, you know, he always like in New York City, he was plugged in with the Hiltons and before they even were big yet, you know, and and Nikki in Paris would come to Beecher's Madhouse in New York City. Uh, we used to do it at the uh, the Supper Club on 47th and Broadway. And uh, so Beecher was just this, this showman who created Beecher's Madhouse. And so that happened in the early 2000s. And it was, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a mention in page six in the post that, you know, the, you know, I forget who was there, Rose McGowan was at Beecher's Madhouse. And so Peter Morton, who owned the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas at that time, was a big, uh, he always had his fingers on the pulse of, you know, what was hot. And, and you know, and so he saw, he, he saw these mentions that kind of kept happening about Beecher's Madhouse. So he talked to us about bringing the show to the Hard Rock Hotel in Las Vegas. So that's when sort of the whole thing blew up. Like we were, we started in New York. And then we went to Vegas and then we just had this New York City hustle that, you know, we applied to Las Vegas, you know, basically what, what we were doing in New York, except sort of with that sensibility of promotion and marketing. And, you know, Beecher was a genius promoter. So he would do, you know, we would do, we would do, we would do publicity stunts that cost money, you know, and, you know, we would, we would be in a, uh, a hotel and there's laws in Las Vegas. You know, you can't mess with other hotels. Like there's laws that, you know, and understandings, but we would do publicity stunts and we would check, you know, that was the great thing of being at the, the hard rock at that time was it was not a corporate place. It was not a, uh, a board or anything like that. It was the owner, Peter Morton. And he had like the marketing people and the president of the hotel and, and what have you, but it was very easy to, say, hey, we want to do this thing. And they would say, oh, that's going to probably, they're going to probably fine us 50 grand. And they're like, will, will it make the news? We're like, yeah. <laughs> and then so you would do it, you know, so, <laughs> go ahead. So, so Pete, based on that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I remember there was a publicity stunt of somebody getting into a fish tank. Right. Is, so is that right? Right, right. So that, and again, this is an example. The Billboard Awards were happening at the MGM Grand. And we planned, uh, we planned uh, basically when, when they released the crowd at the, uh, at the MGM Grand Arena, there's only one way to get back to the casino. And that's where everyone goes. They want to go to gamble and go to eat and drink and, and, and party. So to get there, you have to pass the Rainforest Cafe. 
So what we did was we we got uh, Jeff Beecher, who was at the time hundreds of pounds. He was like three. He was a huge. He was a big fat guy. So we 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 scouted this whole operation out. We called local news organizations to to we tipped one. We tipped off basically one NBC camera guy to be at the restaurant. And, you know, he had his, his beta cam under the table and we, and, you know, we were all in touch with each other when it was going to go down. So they released the billboard awards. All these people start run, you know, rushing back to the casino and you see Jeff Beecher climb into a fish tank that's right outside of the rainforest cafe, a giant fish tank with an oxygen hookup. He's just wearing a black speedo. He was like 300 and something. He's a big fat guy in a speedo with a snorkel and black socks standing at the bottom of this aquarium. And he unrolls a sign that says Beecher's Madhouse, you know, December 31st, which is the date that we were opening at the Hard Rock. And so you had all of these celebrities walking by, taking pictures with them. And, you know, the cops came, I mean, they didn't know what to do. They arrested Joe Francis because they thought he had something, he happened to be walking by. He was the guy from Girls Gone Wild back in the day. He got arrested. He got, they, dude, Joe Francis got like pushed up against a fountain, chipped his tooth. He, he sued the end. He made money off this deal, right? It was it was a publicity stunt that was on all of the news. Like that, like back then there was no TMZ at the time. Like you had to, we 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 would we sent the tapes to the evening news channels to show that this happened, you know. And you know, it's like Nikki in Paris, like posing with him and stuff like that. It was crazy, man. So yeah, we did. We got a lot away with a lot, but that was the fun thing about Las Vegas at that time, especially, um, you know, when you talk about nightlife, and the nightlife industry, that's Las Vegas from, let's say, 2002 to 2000, you know, until the crash happened in 08 was the pinnacle of 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 uh, spending uh, and of uh, proper spending of the nightlife experience, the, the nightclubs that were that were doing their thing and what we were doing with Beecher's Madhouse. And uh, it was almost, it was almost as if we were given, you know, pretty much a, a, a blank check to, to fulfill our dreams. We would just have stupid, crazy ideas and they'd be like, sure. And you get to do it, you know? So it, it was, it was, it was that time in Las Vegas where so much money was being spent and it was so much attention was given to the nightlife experience. So, Speaking of these crazy shows and this blank check that you basically were given to be able to do this stuff, um, I was lucky enough to actually have the opportunity to go to Beecher's Madhouse in LA, but then also do what we did in Calgary. Um, I had seen some of these shows even prior to going, such as Mini Kiss. Um, I'd seen the videos of the Mini Mayweather, all that kind of stuff. So you created some of these shows yourself with Beecher's Madhouse and these little people shows, and then you had your own characters you played. Can you tell us a little bit more about that side? Right. Of so Jeff, Jeff w- was always good at it. I mean, he would play stuff in the press. You know, whatever was happening. If if if, if Kim Kardashian was having a baby, we were going to have Mini Kim Kardashian giving birth on stage in front of like Hollywood elites. <laughs> you know, like that was that was what was going to happen that week. You know, so it was it, it was sort of. Uh, you know, we would, we would just miniaturize every popular act and it was just an easy press, uh, press layup. And we became known for those, 
you know, for, for employing lots of little people. So in Las Vegas, especially, you know, we would, whatever we can do, like when Kelly Osborne turned 21 at Beecher's Madhouse in, in, in Vegas, we gave her a 21 midget salute. And, uh, and it was like the first of its kind. It was like never been done. That's another thing. You work with little people so much, you're breaking barriers that you didn't know even existed. <laughs> you're just finding new ways to, you know, to, to make fun with them. But uh, they were they were a big part of sort of our show. And, so, you know, what we what we used to call, you know, the Beecher Madhouse family with we Matt McCarthy and with uh, little Donnie Davis. I mean, these are little people that we've worked with for so long that would do, you know, anything for the most part. They were very, very free spirited individuals that can be easily coaxed with a, you know, a Tito's and soda. <laughs> and how did the uh how did the pd boy jones character come along like you would rap to start these shows. right so i I start off beecher's madhouse uh doing a rap to it and it was just fulfilling this childhood dream of always wanting to be a rat like a rapper you know um so i started doing it when we when we opened in new york city and it was just sort of a high energy way to 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 greet the crowd and I try to look as ridiculously anti, like against, I don't want to say anti, but against what you would normally think someone that's going to rap to you, you know what I mean? And actually can rap, you know? I, I tried to dress the opposite of whatever that would look like. So I would wear, you know, really jokey plaid pants and, you know, polo shirts, but then also wear fat rope gold chains. Like it didn't make sense. Visually, you were like, what is this person trying to do here? But we, but it was, it was this character that was a sort of a, a ringmaster, right? So Beecher's Madhouse always felt to me like this circus, this nightlife circus. So I wanted to be sort of this ringmaster. So that was what I thought. Peter Boy Jones is what, what I thought a ringmaster would look like in this, in this scenario. Now, based on Petey Boy Jones, I've, I've seen the show um, numerous times, uh, whether it was Vegas, LA, Calgary, you are the man, you come out, you're the MC. Um, I'm gonna put you on the spot here. I don't know if you can or can't do this, but can you give us a Petey Boy Jones rap? A Petey Boy Jones rap? Like freestyle rap right now? Yeah, freestyle rap right now. Uh, okay, yeah, I mean, uh, do you know how to beatbox? No. <laughs> so, so, oh, Lauren so, could try, Lauren could try. Lauren, I mean, if someone drops a beat, I will do a freestyle. I mean, I can freestyle right now, just, just sort of, acapella right i mean we can do that now um will it be awkward probably was i prepared for this no no I, yeah there we go let me hear that beat go yo hanging out with my man dave rocking the mic like you knew he paid money yo he's looking funny he's got the long hair it's kind of a scare it's like <laughs> scarecrow Yo, <laughs> that's, uh, that's, my single. that's my single. I love you, buddy. If anyone I wants a, an example of some good, awkward white rapping, you just got it right there. <laughs> now, Pete, working in Vegas in the early 2000s, you were hosting not just at Beecher's Madhouse, but you're also hosting major events and emceeing at the major nightclubs. Um, what kind of events were you a part of? Can you tell us, tell us a little bit more of the Tawagogo? Yeah, my, so my niche was like, uh, Light used to have a, 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 an event called Polo Palooza. Tawagogo had, or uh, the Tawa group had Tawagogo. 
you know, any, I sort of became the guy that would emcee all the events that were sort of, you know, uh, based on uh, crowd interaction, you know, sort of make noise if this person wins and whatever. So a lot of it was go-go competitions and stuff like that. Uh, but I really did a, a ton of, um, you know, costume ones for Halloween. You know, I would, there'd be times where I would do one at light at the Bellagio, get in the car, go to Body English at the Hard Rock, and then do a late, late night one at the Mirage uh, at Jet or something. Like, it was just really, really crazy. Um, <clears throat> but it was a lot of fun, man. It was, you know, anytime that you're doing a contest where you're giving away money to regular people, they'll go all out. You know, the, the, the Halloween ones, for example, there are people that live in like Bumblefuck, Wisconsin. They work on a costume. They drive it from Wisconsin, go to Vegas, and then hit up all of these nightclubs to try to win 10 grand because it'll be like $10,000 per contest. So they'll go, like I've talked to a guy, there was one year that I did, this guy had this amazing, um, he had this amazing uh, Star Wars uh, costume where it looked like he was like riding on a fucking, you know, one of the, the Star Wars creatures. And it did, it was like insane. It looked like it was out of the movie. And he told me, it, you know, he spent maybe two grand on his costume making it. And that time he had won first prize in two of the events that I've done. So there was 20 grand right there. And then he had won like another, you know, another five grand at another casino with that costume. So the guy has like, 20, the guy's walking with like 25, he's leaving Vegas, like 30 grand up off of just doing one week in a contest, you know, but it was crazy, man. It was a lot of fun. It was part of what the nightlife show was, you know, when you, when you would do these things, it was a way to get people in the doors and, you know, all of those years in Vegas, cause it used to always be, you know, Paris is here or whoever the big celebrities were at the time, you know, the appearance, the appearance fees that they would get just to be at the club. That was sort of the night that you would promote. And on nights where you couldn't get whoever it was, you know, uh, Fergie or whoever at the time it was, you would make sure you're doing a contest to get people in, you know, on those, on those, uh, on those events. But the, the fun of it was like when it was like the, the towel go-go and stuff like that, it was a way to give back to the locals because these girls work all of these nightclubs, they dance their asses off and it was a way to kind of give them some, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have a competition, the winner gets 10 grand and then we would give the other girls money as well that made it to the finals and stuff like that. So it was just fun, man. It was just a way to, a way to get people in. And just a way that you, you see just people making money where you're like, this is crazy. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to give us a rating and write a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. It helps us out a ton and allows us to keep producing great content. While you're at it, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Last Call Confessions and give us a follow for all the up-to-date info on the podcast. Now we, we had a conversation the other day about, about this money that, that you guys gave away and you guys, you guys were giving away a lot of money, $10,000 back in the two, 2000s. That's, that's a lot of money, but you said, it, you know, there was guests or, or, or people, you know, oh, yeah. in the clubs that, that would step it up and, and that up would the up it. They would up the, they would up the money. There was one time we were doing Tower go, go. The first prize is, is $10,000. That's all these girls were dancing for. 
So we have the final 10 girls on the center catwalk uh, in, in the main dance hall of uh, Tao nightclub at the Venetian. And I'm like, all right, here we go. This girl dances, all right, this girl dances. And then the one of the nightclub managers who I know very well, like leaned over to me and she says, look, we got a little change here. And she directs me to this VIP who's at the owner's table. The guy had a buddy of his who has a briefcase and he just opens the briefcase and it's just cash, right? Like like cash. And he goes, and he had an accent. He goes, <clears throat> I want to give every, every girl, every girl, every finalist wins $10,000. So, so it went from one girl winning $10,000 to now everybody wins $10,000. <laughs> and then he said that he was going to give a second 100,000 to the winner of these 10 girls. So it's like, and you, and by the way, that was that trans that transaction was completed. Like if you do, if you announce that something is going down at one of these events inside a casino, you have to honor whatever you're saying. That was like another thing too. Like you win money and then you immediately get taken to do paperwork. You know, it's it's a very it's it's all by the book. Like there's no like, oh yeah, we'll leave you. You know, pick up that backpack. It's in there. You know, it's 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 all very very it's all very quick. There was one time I was doing a, a Halloween one and it was at Jet Nightclub. And so we were giving 20 grand away, uh, 10 grand for the, for the uh, sexiest costume and 10 grand for the most creative costume, okay? So we do most creative first. The person who wins the $10,000 for the most creative costume was a giant, it's a huge rig of a costume this guy was wearing. You don't even see that there's a person in there. He's on stilts and he's fully, he's just this huge rock monster. And he calls himself the pimp monster. And he has, uh, he has a big gold chain around him. And, and he has a, 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 like a pimp stick, a hat. And he has an action, his arm bitch slaps like this, a big broad, bah! And it's a huge costume, it's just, bah! And he was bitch slapping his way to 10 grand for the most creative, most, uh, creative costume contest. And boom, he wins the 10 grand. He goes in the back, he signs his paperwork. Now he's just hanging out in the back bar. Now it's time, about an hour later, now I'm gonna give 10 grand for the sexiest costume contest. I get on the mic and the security wasn't doing their job. Like all of a sudden I'm like, all right, we're about to get to the uh, sexiest girl, the sexiest uh, costume contest. Girls start bum rushing the stage. Security wasn't on top of it. There's a major failure. So now these women are, are jumping up on the stage. And I was like, and on the mic, I had to do crowd control. So I'm like, ladies, ladies, whoa, whoa, whoa. So everyone, ladies, this is not, this is not, this is not how we're doing this. And I'm trying to talk it down. And, I, and all of a sudden I look at the crowd because the, the crowd starts booing these girls, bum rushing the stage. I go, does anyone think any of these girls deserve $10,000? And everyone goes, no, boo. And I, and I go, who thinks the pimp monster should win the sexiest costume contest? And everyone's like, yeah and all of a sudden from the back of the room you see this fucking guy go <laughs> he just bitch slaps his way to the stage and he comes up and he receives the second ten thousand dollars that i just gave him and because i said that on the microphone you have to pay the man that was it um so going off that you've also hosted a ton of celebrity events and birthdays over the years are there any that stand out to you particularly oh lauren well, yeah, uh, we did Miley's 21st birthday, which is kind of funny because it was like, we've been partying with you for three years. It was almost like 
she was, she, there was, there was so much underage partying that when she turned 21, it almost seemed like an afterthought. We were like, ah. Um, so yeah, Miley's in LA was great. And Kelly Osbourne's 21st in Vegas was great. Um, I emceed Floyd Mayweather's 30th birthday uh, at uh, Jet at the Mirage at the time. And that was, I dressed up in a big fat suit, like um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Don King. And yeah. I was just in a big fat suit, the crazy hair. Uh, and I emceed uh, Floyd's 20th, or I'm sorry, his uh, 30th, brought up his family. Like Floyd was like, he didn't, he didn't tell me how this was going to go down, but he had family there. And I just was saying all the right things about the family and this and that. And every time I would shake Floyd's hand, I would feel something in my hand, you know? And I'm like, oh, and I, and I started, I was like, oh, he's like every, every interaction, I had like a hundred bucks from Floyd. And to the point where, I, you know, when I'm working, I'm on the stage and I'm just stuffing my pocket. I'm like, all right, just stuffing it. I felt like, you know, I was like a stripper just trying to find openings to just put this cash. And I finally, uh, we did like the cake ceremony and I was able to like go to the bathroom and I'm in the bathroom stall, like, spilling out hundreds of dollars from Floyd, like trying to like piece it all together. It's all crumpled up and stuff. Um, but yeah, man, those were, it, those were the days, man. The, the, the celebrity events were, especially if, the, if it was a cool celebrity, it was always a lot of fun, you know, yeah. any sort of, any sort of, you know, all the cool celebrities were great, you know, and the same, and the same thing with the DJs that would, that would work those events, you know? Um, but yeah, it was, it was fun. So I would say my answer would be, Miley's 21st for sure because that was like what are we doing here <laughs> well like you know you got to celebrate those milestones yeah it's like you know when you're like in high school well we're from out Calgary you're allowed to start drinking when you're 18 right yeah, so like, yeah obviously yeah. we've been drinking in high school but once you turn 18 you still gotta do the big party but it was it was it was fun doing the like I said all of the Vegas stuff at that time really relied on having celebrity guests that was sort yeah. of like the the thing you know and, and for the most part, they were just happy to be there and they couldn't believe they were getting paid so much money to be there, you know? Yeah. Dave, you know, people. you've had, you've had people like Cowboys where you're like, you're talking to their agent. You're like, how much does fucking so-and-so want? And you're like, they're like a hundred grand. And you're like, okay, really? Been there, done that. It yeah. happens. It happens. Hey, man. It's all, it's all, it's all for the fun, man. Yeah. Hey, rumor has it you had a run-in with Mel Gibson. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So, so, and this is this is great. So, Mel Gibson came to Beecher's Madhouse one night in in Los Angeles, and the LA room is a small stage, and he just had a blast. Like, and that's the thing that when we would do it at the at the Roosevelt, and that's where you've been to Austin, um, it's it's a really intimate room. So when you when there's A-list celebrities in there, you see them; they're right there. You know, you're just you're like, oh, that's that person. And, uh, and it, would, it was very common to see big, you know, I would just come out and the, the curtain opens and then the front row, I'm like, that's Eddie Murphy. You know, you're just like, oh, you know, people you've looked up to are there like being like, what is this guy doing, you know? Uh, so Mel Gibson came in and he's one of those, I was always like a huge Lethal Weapon fan, you know, big Mel Gibson fan. And, uh, you know, I, I, the actor from the eighties and nineties and all that good stuff. So uh, we do a show and he was, he was having a great time. So I wind up getting off the stage. I say goodnight to everyone. We're emptying the room out. Everyone's leaving the club. The lights are on. And I go take my microphone to go give it to the sound guy in the back. 
And as I go do that, I, I just crossed paths with Mel Gibson. And I was like, I was really like, I was fine. Like when you see him from the stage and there's a show happening, there's lights and like, you, you don't really get phased by it. But when you're after the show, the lights are on, no one's there and it's you and Mel Gibson. I was like, oh, I was kind of thrown off guard. And he goes, he goes, hey man, uh, great show, man. Great show, man. It's, it's a good show. I go, thanks, man. I go, I, I said, thanks, Mr. Gibson. And then this next sentence came out of my mouth. I don't know where it came from, but it just came out. I go, you know, all the Jewish stuff aside, that's what I open with, okay? And I, this is me, like, I don't understand. You ever say something where you're like, I don't even understand why I was saying this. And like, it just came out and I was like, well, and I just wanted to take it back, but it's already there. So I, I literally say, I, I said, thank you, Mr. Gibson. You know, like all the Jewish stuff aside. And then he, like, he like looks at me and he kind of had like a little smile on his face. Now, here's the thing. In his position, he can't really say anything because it's like, you know, he, he was, you know, I, I, I kind of look Jewish and like, you know, whatever. Like he, he, he had a one bad traffic stop, whatever you want to say. Uh, and he just looks at me and I go, he, I go, all the Jewish stuff aside, he just looks at me. And I go, uh, Apocalypto is a great movie. And it was this movie that he had done. And I don't know what I, and he just smiled at me and he goes, thanks, man. Thanks. I was like, ooh, I got out of that one. And I was like, ooh, was, just tell yourself, don't, don't, don't bring up the Jews anymore in front of Mel Gibson. I don't know why. <laughs> I just, just introduced that, that wonderful chapter of his life to his face. <laughs> Pete, throughout all the places that you've performed and all the acts you've created, you've been in front and center in a lot of crazy nights. Are there any particular nights or stories that stand out? That's a great question. Um, I have to say in the early 2000s, we, when we were at the Hard Rock Hotel in Las Vegas, was probably the most surreal time of my life because we were working and, and, and being a part of so many like big people at that time, like the, you know, and that were either that would become a part of our show or would be in the audience. And I'm telling you, like the, the early from like 2004 to 2007 was some of the most surreal years we had, you know, Britney Spears came with Kevin Federline to our show and she was pregnant. You know what I mean? Like visibly. And I was like, you know, it was like these, these, these moments in your life where you're like, wow, like I'm never going to forget that, you know, I'm never going to forget, you know, and, and little John, like whoever was hot at that time was always around. And it was the, the Hard Rock Hotel uh, in Vegas at that time just felt like this clubhouse of, of celebrities. So I gotta say it's, it wouldn't be one, one moment, but I would just say that chunk, of that chunk of time in Las Vegas at the Hard Rock was like, was just so, was so wild. Uh, just in the, in the fact that you'd, everyone, there'd be people that you looked up to that you would meet and, and tell you that you were awesome. And you're like, what, you know? and, and and you would, and anything was possible. Like you would see, you know, it's like, it's like Green Day is doing a show for like 10 people in the other room right now, if you want to go check it out, you know, and you're like, all right. It's it just very, very cool moments, you know? And that's the one thing I gotta, I gotta give to, uh, you know, following, following whatever heart that you have and whether it's interest in, in uh, anything creative, anything that's risky, like nightlife is risky. You know, these are not, easy, these are not home run professions or, or opportunities, you know? So taking those chances to do that stuff has paid off. Uh, I think for all of us that have done it, but 
for me, particularly in those years where I was like, that was fucking cool, man. Like I can die now and I've already done so many cool things. I was like, that's awesome. Like, that's great. Now I'll just stay in on a, on a, on a Saturday night. You know, I'm just like, I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. So Pete, being up on that stage and, and you're like, we've had the luxury of all these celebrities uh, that walk through the doors and a lot of the times actually unannounced. Have you had any celebrity crushes um, walk into a venue that, that you're literally on stage, you're emceeing, you're hosting and look out into the crowd and go, oh my God, there's so-and-so, I can't believe they're in here. Yeah, there was one time it was Sandler was in there and I was like, that was a pretty big one. I'm like, I love Sandler. I'm like, that's, that's cool. I hope he likes this. You know, same thing with like David Spade as well. And, and he's someone I've kind of, you know, known a little bit, you know, but performing, you, you perform in front of people sometimes you're like, oh, that's really cool, man. Like that, that makes, that's really, really cool. You know, I'm a NASCAR fan. I'm like a race fan. And sometimes I performed in front of like race car drivers, like Jeff Gordon or Jimmy Johnson. I was like, and I, and I nerd out and no one can believe it. They're like, you're like NASCAR. Like, what are you doing? Uh, so yeah, man, it's, Eddie Murphy, like I said, he was one of those guys where I, when I saw him in the crowd, I'm like, that's fucking Eddie Murphy right there. That's really cool. Uh, and then a lot of times you'll get people in the audience where you're like, there was one time I was doing a show in Vegas and there was a girl, uh, uh, she was a, a porn star named Christy Mack and she was dating a, a MMA fighter and, he, and they, they called him like, uh, uh, what's it like murder machine or something. It was like, oh, like I forget his name. Yeah. It was a very intimidating name. And, and, and that's what like he went by. And I, I remember I addressed that she was here like, Oh, you know, and, and then I, I mentioned her and him and that dude looked at me like he was going to murder my family. And I was like, Whoa, dude. Like he just gave me the finger, but looked at me like, I'm going to fucking kill you and your family. <laughs> like That's what it felt like. And I was like the whole, the whole rest of the night, it was like, they weren't there. I was, I was like, I'm not even going to look over in their direction. Um, yeah. So yeah, that guy's now in jail for assault. So yeah, he's not, he's not coming out anytime soon, but it was one of those scary, it was one of those like scary, scary things where you're like, holy shit, I hope I get out of here. All right. So Pete, I know things have been obviously shut down pretty tight where you are right now. Uh, you've been working away, trying to adapt and do different things, but What's next for you once things open back up? What are your plans? That's a great question, man. I think a lot of us are kind of in that situation where, <clears throat> you know, you could kind of maybe give yourself an idea of what you think is going to happen. Or, or I just feel like th that this, the industry of entertainment and nightlife and is, is at this point very unpredictable. Uh, just the next, who knows how it's going to work out, but I think it's going to be fine, but it's going to take a second. So I'm trying not to give myself deadlines or goals of things where I just, I just feel so uncertain. So uh, what is next is just remaining positive, staying safe, washing my hands, getting that vaccine. I'm going to get that vaccine, dog. I'll get you vaccine. If you're out there, if you're watching this vaccine, hit me up. I'd love to talk to you. Get with me, get my arm. I've done a couple of outdoor shows. So I'm guessing I'm going to do more of those and then eventually get back to indoor venues. But it's it's just too, so unpredict unpredictable right now. Or I can just move to Texas and just do whatever I want. <laughs> we can do shows, no mask, everyone wears a mask, whatever you want. 
Well, if, you, if people want to follow you or get to know more about you, um, what is the best way for them to do that? Yeah, go to my website, hairandteeth.com. It's hairandteeth.com. It's a real website. Um, I would do shows around the country and I would say like, all right, guys, my name is Pete Giovine, you know, whatever. And um, they don't know how to spell it. They don't know how to, they don't know Giovine. So I was like, all right, I wonder if hairandteeth.com is available. And it was available. It was available. I, I called the guy. I couldn't believe it. I was like, dude, it's really available. And the guy's like, yeah, why wouldn't it be available? And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, hair and teeth, that actually kind of sounds like a gross website. <laughs> Your website. <laughs> but it's my website. You go to hairandteeth.com. You can follow me on Instagram and all that stuff through there. Um, but yeah, and I got the, some blogs and podcasts and stuff like that up there. So check it out. So yeah, I'm hoping, that, and this is what I say to you guys as well. Hopefully we're partying soon. And, you know, 2021, hope, hopefully a lot of good stuff happens in this year and Soon enough, we'll all be living the high life again. Hundred <laughs> percent, Pete. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Last Call Confessions. Um, looking forward to seeing you in person and getting together and uh, tipping some back. So you know, from from us here in Canada all the way out to uh, sunny California. Um, yes, can't can't wait to see you again, buddy. Thank you so guys, so much. Guys, thank you for so much for show. having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Last Call Confessions. It would mean the world to us if you could make sure to give us a rating and write a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform, as well as give our Instagram page, at Last Call Confessions, a follow. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the podcast, make sure to send us a DM. From all of us to you, wherever you're listening, thank you for making Last Call Confessions part of your day.